I did do the ladies' workout. Uh, great to be with you this morning. As you can tell, I'm not Larry Trotter. Uh, our lead teaching pastor, Larry, was away this week at an elders' retreat. Our elders retreat once a year for a time of extended prayer, uh, evaluation of the ministries of the church, and really seeing where they decide that we need to grow as a church body next year. That's where our annual focus uh, comes into play. So they were away retreating. And what I want to do this morning is encourage you to pray for these men often. They have a significant load that they carry shepherding us, and they shepherd us with excellence. And if you don't know who the elders are, we're going to pray for them this morning, but our elders are Larry Trotter, Rob Craig, Jeff Doyle, Greg Mathias, Sam Williams, Stuart Bullman, and Tom Iverson. And so I just want to take a moment and pray for them, pray for our time together in God's Word. Uh, And real quick before I do that, as you walked in, uh, you probably had to walk around an easel or an A-frame with a big board with about 180 serve positions on there. We're going through our serve transition, and it really takes all of the members of North Wake serving to be able to provide the excellent ministries that we do here on Sunday morning. So if you're a North Wake member and you are not currently serving, I want to encourage you to, on your way out, stop by and fill your name in on one of those 180 service positions. We really need your help. So I'm going to pray for our elders and I'm going to pray for our time together. So pray with me. Father, what a privilege it is to come before you this morning and worship you. And Father, I pray that our worship to you is worship in spirit and in truth. It engages every faculty of our being. Lord, we're thankful for these men that you have put as shepherds and overseers of our souls. We pray for Larry, Rob, Jeff, Greg, Stu, Sam, and Tom. Grant these men wisdom, discernment. Father, we pray for their unity, that they would be of one mind. Father, we also pray for their families, that their marriages would be a picture of your love for your bride. Protect them from the fiery darts of the evil one. And Father, today as we sit under the teaching of your word, I pray that we would not just learn new things about you, but we would be transformed. That we would be conformed into the image of Christ. So help us do that now, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Larry led us with excellence last week in Matthew chapter 19, the beginning verses of that chapter on the sanctity of marriage. And so we're going to be in Matthew 19, starting in verse 13 today. So if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 19, starting in verse 13. It says that then the children were brought to him, to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Ben Merkel preached the passage earlier in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5, 
which addresses a very similar teaching. So this should sound very familiar to you. And if you recall, he is calling his disciples to admire a particular attribute found in little children of the day. And if you remember, Ben said that it's not because children were inherently innocent or humble, but it was their low social status in their culture. It was their dependence that he was highlighting here. Their dependence upon their parents for everything. So Jesus was reminding his disciples and us today of this earlier teaching that the kingdom of heaven belongs to folks like these little ones. The kingdom of heaven is for those like these children. The citizens of heaven have this common trait, this trait of dependence. And so there is a clinging to Christ as their great hope. Citizenship in heaven, in God's kingdom, belong to those who depend upon God and God alone. So this got me thinking about citizenship, citizenship in general. And I was trying to remember what the requirements were for U.S. citizenship. I mean, does anybody really remember middle school civics class? It's a big fog in my mind. I remember chemistry because I got to play with fire and acid. I remember shop class because I got to use power tools. And I really remember PE because I got to tackle people. And that was a lot of fun for me. But civics class seems to have been vacuumed into this black hole of my mind. So what does it take to become a U.S. citizen? Did you know that approximately 680,000 people are made citizens and naturalized each and every year? I did not know it was that many people. But the slide behind me, you can see, this is the Cliff Notes version of a 45-page document. I skimmed through, just like I did in middle school civics class, uh, of the requirements it takes for a person to become a U.S. citizen. So these are what these hundreds of thousands of men and women each year have to go through. A friend of mine told me that most of us couldn't pass these requirements. The test for civics and even English, uh, we would not be able to pass. So becoming a U.S. citizen is an extensive process. It requires a lot of mental energies and at some level financial commitment from these folks. So how does a person become a citizen of heaven? This is the question raised by the rich young man that we're about to read about. Picking back up in Matthew verse 16. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now first read this question sounds innocent enough, right? I mean, Jesus is the one who's been teaching time and time again about the kingdom. If you were to study up in Matthew up to the point we're at now, Jesus references the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom some 37 times. So this young man's actually going to the expert in the field. So he's going at least to the right person with his question. But I want to turn our attention to the question itself for a moment. Is it a good question? Is it a good question? 
One of the things I was trained to do uh, in my pastoral counseling classes was to listen for unbiblical thinking and replace it with biblical truth. To listen for unbiblical thinking and replace it with biblical truth. Such a simple statement, but it has helped me so often. When I'm sitting across from a person who is struggling and hurting with a particular issue, and with a marriage that may be falling apart, I'm constantly listening carefully to figure out what are they thinking, doing, or feeling that does not line up with scriptures. And I'm trying to help them get in line and really believe that this way of living, this way that God tells us to live is better for them. What has gripped their affections more than God? So I have to do a lot of listening and I have to listen very carefully. So let's do this now. Let's listen to the words of this rich young man and let's see if there's any unbiblical thinking in his question. His question is, what good deed must I do to have eternal life. So my first concern for this young man is that he thinks that he can do good. He says, what good deeds must I do? This is unbiblical thinking. Listen to this passage in Psalm 14.1. It reads, there is none who is good. None. And then Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So the Bible teaches that there is no one that is good. Even your very best, your most righteous act is like the filthiest, most grotesque item you can imagine. So not only is he naive about his ability to do good. Listen, as we read it again, what good deed must I do? What good deed must I do to obtain eternal life? He thinks he can do good. But the scriptures teach in Isaiah 53 verses 5 through 6, but he, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Habakkuk 2.4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul commented on this passage in Habakkuk, writes, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's Galatians 3.11. So these passages describe a salvation by faith, not by works. Citizenship in God's kingdom is secured by faith in Christ's efforts, not man's efforts. Man cannot do anything to merit salvation. So in this brief question, we are provided a window into this man's soul, a window into his beliefs, and this man has a works-based salvation. 
he thinks that he can obtain citizenship through his own good efforts. So, how does Jesus, the wonderful counselor, as he's listening to this man, begin to replace his unbiblical thinking with biblical truth? Picking back up in verse 17. And he says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The first thing Jesus does is begin to refocus this man's attention. He's moving him away from focus on self to focusing on God. The young man was focused on his own good deeds. And here Jesus reminds him that God alone is good. How could this young man do good deeds if he's not capable of doing good? So very quickly, Jesus is turning the conversation towards God. But notice, Jesus tells him that if he wants eternal life, he must keep the commandments. So why would Jesus direct this young man to the law if salvation is by faith alone. First, I want you to notice that Jesus turns him towards Scripture. He turns his mind towards God's Word. He points him towards the commandments and the law, and this should reveal this man's need for one outside of himself that is good. Galatians 3.24 reads, Therefore the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. From the passages we've already read and here in Galatians, none of us can keep the law. The commandments were not designed to make us holy, but to be a tutor, a teacher, a guardian, if you will, put in place to point us towards our need for a savior. So here is the savior pointing this man to the law, which the law should point him to the man he's standing face to face with. Do you see the irony of this conversation and situation? So how does Jesus, or excuse me, how does the young man respond? He says to Jesus, which ones? Which laws, Jesus? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? So very quickly, the man gets specific. He gets technical. He asked Jesus, which commands are important? He wants to know which of the some 600 commands in the Old Testament are pertinent to his question of salvation. Which ones really matter, Jesus? So what laws does Jesus bring up? He brings up five of the Ten Commandments accompanied by the second and greatest commandment, which summarizes the neighbor love commands. He references the ones that are about the man's horizontal relationships. And to the initial excitement of the young man, he says, Jesus, I've kept them all. I've kept them all. Now, 
This man is obviously mistaken. He's obviously naive. But there is a sense of humility because he knows there's something still lacking. And he's asking Jesus the question, what's still missing? Something's got to be missing here. And here we pick back up in verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Then the young man heard this and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So to be perfect, to be complete, to reach the wholeness of consecration to God, Jesus tells him to go sell and give and then come and follow him. So I have a question. Do we all really have to become vagabonds to enter eternal life? Do we all have to go and sell everything that we have, become homeless to enter the kingdom of God? If so, we're all in a lot of trouble. Most of us left possessions and traveled in possessions to be here this morning. We're wearing possessions and we're holding electronic possessions. A lot of us, tablets and smartphones are in our pockets. So if we have to sell everything to become citizens of heaven, I expect that the Craigslist asked for the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area to explode this evening as all of us go and put everything we have up for sale so that we can have eternal life. So if that's not what Jesus is after, what is Jesus after? He's after the man's heart. He's after our heart. You see, Jesus' previous directives were about the man's horizontal relationships, his relationships with other people. But now he turns his focus to the man's relationship with God, the vertical commands, especially the first commandment, which reads in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So the wonderful counselor prophesied in Isaiah 9-6 is drawing out the deep waters of this man's heart. He is exposing a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The great physician is attempting a heart transplant here, desiring to extract a heart rooted in self-sufficiency, security, and identity derived from wealth in hopes of replacing it with a heart that finds its complete sufficiency in God. One that is secure in Christ, one that is rooted in the gospel. This is what Jesus is after, and he's not willing to settle for anything less. He says, I will not share my glory with another. This man's heart, unfortunately, is rooted in the idolatry of possessions. And in love, Jesus is boldly offering him freedom from the bondage and slavery that idolatry has him in. 
And the man's response to Jesus' call to sell and follow is very telling. Here was this man's chance to draw near to the good and mighty king. And instead, head bowed, bowed low, he walks away sorrowful. Psalm 16.4 says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. This man's sorrows have multiplied because he runs after the God of money. Now, as we've already identified, Jesus is about uprooting the idols of the heart in this passage. Anything that any of us love more than God. Possessions were this man's idol, but they're not everyone's idol. Even though many people are seduced by possessions and money and stuff in our culture today. So the application for us is not always the same. All of us don't have to walk out of here today and sell everything that we have, become homeless to enter eternal life. But some of us may need to let go of the God of money. But for others, it may be a different idol. If you had been this young man, what would Jesus have asked you to let go of? To follow him. As he looks into your heart, what would he say has a grip on your affections? Would it be money, possessions, and stuff? Or would it be something else? A couple of years ago, Greg Bowers was discipling a young man in his early 20s. This young man had professed to be a believer for about six months and had recently been baptized a couple of weeks prior. And Greg asked me, he says, Jake, I need you to come sit in on a, on a discipleship meeting with me. And so I was curious. I said, I wonder why Greg wants me to sit in on this discipleship meeting with him. I don't ask people regularly to sit in on their discipleship meetings with people that I'm discipling. So I was intrigued. And of course, I said, sure, I'll sit in on your meeting with you. So after talking with this young man for a little while, it became apparent why Greg had asked me to sit in. Greg had been discipling this man about his relationship with his girlfriend. It became apparent that this young man was having inappropriate physical relationships with this young lady that was not his wife. And as we began to talk to him, about halfway through the conversation, you began to see this young man's heart, what it was rooted in. He actually began, became very upset halfway through and says, if what you're telling me is that I have to choose between God and my girlfriend, then I choose and I cut him off. I said, brother, don't finish that statement. I said, I want you to think long and hard about what you're about to say. Because in that moment, he was about to choose God. I mean, excuse me. He was about to choose his relationship, his lusts over God. His true God was revealed in that moment. His greatest affection and allegiance was pleasure. His heart was devoted to physical gratification. Lust was his idol and he was unwilling to give it up. And just like the rich young man in our passage today, he got up upset and sorrowful and walked out of Greg's office. I hope he's making a much different decision today. But at that moment, he chose the God 
of lust over the God of the kingdom of heaven. So this passage is not just about money. It's not primarily about finances. It's about the kingdom of heaven and the allegiances of those who desire citizenship in it. God must be supreme for those who desire to enter the kingdom of God. It is a complete dependence and allegiance to him that is the expectation and requirement for citizenship in his kingdom. Now the danger that this young man faced is the same for us today. What would be difficult for you to give up if God asked you to? What if it were taken away from you could cause you to turn your back on God? Would it be financial resources? What about a relationship? What about pleasure? What about image, status, or power? What about control? Are you willing to give control up of your life to follow God? What would give you a moment of hesitation, of pause, if God says, get rid of that and come and follow me? Whatever that thing is, is your potential idol. Now, it is important for us to highlight here that Jesus is not asking this man to give without getting in return. No, instead in verse 21, it's highlighted that Jesus is actually offering a trade. He wants the man to give up his meager possessions for something of exceeding value. And now even though the rich young man had great possessions, they pale in comparison to the treasure of heaven that Jesus is offering him. In this great tragedy, the young man severely overvalues his possession and significantly undervalues the treasure of heaven. Now so far, Jesus has been addressing this young man and at this point, he transitions his attention and focus to his disciples. The rich young man in his response has provided Jesus a teaching opportunity. And so the master teacher addresses his students in the classroom of life. Verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then? Who then can be saved? But Jesus looks at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus makes two statements back-to-back that astonish his students. His teaching combined with a recent object lesson has left his disciples questioning the ability of anyone being saved. Is salvation even possible? They wonder. Why was this such a radical teaching for them? 
Well, a prominent teaching of the day was that the rich were blessed by God. In Jewish thought, wealth was a tangible sign of God's favor. So, the disciples, in the disciples' minds, if the blessed of God, the blessed of God can't enter the kingdom of heaven, then who could? It seems to be a logical conclusion based on the teachings of the day. So the disciples are stunned. You mean a full-grown live camel can go through the eye of a sewing needle before a rich person can go to heaven? And it is in this moment of great astonishment as the disciples are stunned that Jesus provides the great hope. What is impossible with man is absolutely possible with God. His point is clear. Salvation is possible with God. The Father can do what helpless men cannot. He makes the impossible possible through Him. Citizenship in heaven is made available. Men cannot achieve it through their own best efforts, but God offers it as a free gift. Verse 26 ought to affect you guys as you read this. It should stir up the emotions of every believer. The only natural response to God making this possible is complete and full worship. Anderson Cooper tells a story of a, a man, Wil, Wilfredo Garza. Uh, Wilfredo Garza lived the life of an illegal immigrant for some 35 years. Crossing over into the U.S. to work to provide for his family. Always looking over his shoulder. Scraping by to make a meager living. He actually got caught up some four times by the Border Patrol, and they sent him back to Mexico. Every time, Wilfredo would swim the Rio Grande, come back into the U.S. to try to make a living. And this cycle would have likely continued if it wasn't for an amazing discovery. Wilfredo finally got the courage built up to go into an immigration lawyer's office. And after talking with him and doing a little bit of research, Wilfredo discovered that his father was born in Texas and had worked there for some years. Wilfredo, by his relationship with his father, was a U.S. citizen. He possessed the papers the entire time, his father's birth certificate and his work records. Now he doesn't have to sneak across the border because he's a U.S. citizen. He's got the rights and privileges that come with it. Similar to Wilfredo, whose citizenship was solely based on his relationship with his father, so it is with us. It is our heavenly father that secures our citizenship. It is our relationship with our heavenly father that provides us citizenship in heaven, in his kingdom. He has done the good deeds which we cannot do. He is perfect when we are imperfect and he takes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. All we have to do is walk into the office of faith, commit our allegiance to him and him alone. This 
is our great hope. This is the good news. The next part of our passage, Jesus transitions from discussing the question of salvation to discussing the question of rewards. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Peter, the bold and brash disciple, wants to know, what does Jesus' offer of treasure look like applied to him? Jesus tells him that in the new world, when God's kingdom is fully established, the disciples who would follow him to the end will be given breathtaking responsibilities, as Bruner puts it. Peter's potential selfishness is no match for Jesus' grace. Bruner continues, Matthew's Jesus wants Peter, Peter's fellow disciples, and all future disciples, that's us, to know that Jesus does notice his people's sacrifice. And he does reward them, not only appropriately, but royally. Finally, as Jesus extends rewards to everyone who has made sacrifices to follow him, it actually says that those rewards are a hundredfold. Nowhere else in life are you or I guaranteed a hundredfold return on our investment. But if you are willing to leave all to follow Christ, if you are willing to let go of anything that competes with him, he promises you a reward a hundred times more valuable than what you give up. This is simple. This is not complicated. This is the best deal ever offered. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is worth it. If we really believe at the core of who we are, what Jesus is saying here, if we really believe it to be true, then we would be willing to give whatever he asks us up to follow him. He can have it all because what he offers is so much more valuable. The chapter closes with the statement, many who are first will be last and the last first, which leads to the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. The passage that is coming up in Matthew 20, which Larry will be preaching next Sunday. God's economy is different than the world's economy. God's grace enables those who are marginalized in this world, ones that would never be allowed into the presence of a king or key leader, to be welcomed, received, and honored by the King of Kings as royal citizens in His kingdom. So in closing, citizenship in heaven is not based on our efforts like becoming a U.S. citizen. There's no long list of things to put on a slide up here for you 
that would give you the requirements of becoming a citizen of heaven. You see, U.S. citizenship is based on man's efforts, the deeds of men, where heavenly citizenship is based on the deeds of God. Those who belong to his kingdom depend upon him. So unlike the rich young man, every person that desires to become a citizen in his kingdom must acknowledge that they're a sinner, that they can't keep the law. None of us are good. Only God alone is good. All of us have sinned at some level. A white lie, a little gossip. Maybe we fudged a little bit on our taxes. A moment of anger. All of us have sinned. And God knows this, so He provides a way for His people to become citizens in His kingdom, to spend eternity with Him. He sent His only Son into the world. Can you imagine Jesus being worshipped fully and completely in heaven, voluntarily stepping out of that pure worship and coming into His creation? And He came to live the perfect life that none of us are able to do. Not only did he live the perfect life, he died the perfect death. He absorbed the full wrath of God the Father for every sin, for every sinner that would place their faith and trust in him. And three days later, he was resurrected. And he secured for us an eternal life. God made the impossible possible. It is through faith in Jesus that a trust that radically changes our allegiance that provides us citizenship in heaven. Is this your great hope? Jesus offers us the same invitation as he offered the rich young man. Will you let go of all other allegiances today and follow him? If citizenship in heaven, excuse me, if citizenship in the U.S. expects its candidates to, quote, give up all prior allegiance to any other nation and sovereignty, how much more so with God and his kingdom? So will you walk away from Jesus' offer like the rich young man? Or today, will you let go of your idol and follow him? Let's pray. Father, many of us in this room are already citizens of your kingdom. We're not there yet, but we're citizens because of our faith in you and you alone. But Lord, just because we are your citizens doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin, that we don't struggle with idols. So Father, today I pray that we would lay our idols down at your feet, that we would let them go and we would follow you. Father, some of us here have not placed our faith and trust in you. If we die today, we would not be citizens of your kingdom we would actually be citizens of another kingdom. So Father, I pray that those would 
place their faith and trust in you. That they would believe your offer and see the value of it. So Lord, now as the praise team plays, I pray that we would be moved, whether in our seats or to come down to the altar, and to lay our idols at your feet and to worship you fully in spirit and in truth. Amen.